served with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. All the other shows are for the 1%, and this is a show for the rest of us. I have wanted to do an episode about fast fashion for a long time. I first heard the term about a year ago, maybe a couple years ago, as brands like Fashion Nova and Shein started becoming ubiquitous on my Instagram feed. Influencers and pop stars and rappers were all tagging their posts, showing off cheap but cute outfits as partners for these brands, quote-unquote partners. Cardi B was one, Amber Rose another, the Jenner Kardashians got in on sharing images of themselves in the brand, and then of course, Chinese fast fashion brand Shein came bounding onto the scene with sponsorships with people like Khloe Kardashian. In May of 2020, Shein sponsored a streaming event to raise money for COVID-19 relief, which featured Katy Perry, Doja Cat, Lil Nas X, and Rita Ora with the hashtag SheinTogether. Shein was all over every celebrity's feed. It was truly hard to avoid seeing these brands. The rise of these brands was fast. Business Insider reported in October of 2021 that according to Coresight Research, Shein pulled in an estimated $10 billion in revenue in 2020. And this represented a 250% year-on-year increase in revenue. 250% increase. Other places like ASOS and Boohoo have annual revenues that are like one-third of that number, but still pretty good. Shein does what it does by having an on-demand business model, meaning that clothing is made almost immediately, so like within a week, without the usual three-week lapse between a style becoming popular and its creation as a cheap alternative that brands like Zara have. This is all according to a Medium piece from July 14th written by Jaron Gann. I've bought clothing from Shein. It's hard not to be taken in by it. I got five blouses one time for $15. I got four black dresses for like $5 each. Now, in execution, three out of those five blouses fell apart after one to two wears. I sincerely think that I wore a lot of them like once. You can't really fault people who don't have a lot of disposable income for relying on these brands. And I'd even include H&M and Urban Outfitters and Zara on this list. They're not as fast fashion as Fashion Nova or Shein, but they're still fast fashion. It's way more likely for someone to have 20 bucks at the end of the month for new work clothes than $200. And so for someone to get a quality lasting blazer, let's say, they'd need to have all $200 to spend at once. But to get like three blazers that will do the trick for $20 and then replace them as needed... That's more doable. I'm sure a lot of you guys know this, and that is your life. It is expensive to be poor. You have to replace the clothes much faster. And so that's kind of what I find very sinister about celebs pushing these brands. It's like they can afford the nicer quote-unquote work clothes or clothes in general. So why are they promoting shirts that fall apart after one wash? We know why. A solution I've found to be a good middle ground is thrifting. You can get quality used clothing for an affordable price. But unfortunately, because this show is a bummer, even thrifting has its pros and cons. 
The rise of online resale shops like Depop and Poshmark have created accessibility, but they've also caused thrift stores to be ransacked so people could upsell their findings online. A 2021 Vox article by Terry Nguyen reported, The concern is over how upper and middle class haulers, people who purchase massive amounts of secondhand clothing for resale purposes or personal wear, are contributing to the gentrification of thrift stores. The article continued, As a result, low-income shoppers might be priced out of thrift stores in their area, and plus-size customers who already struggle to find clothing in the first-hand market could be left with fewer options. It's a concept we come back to a lot on Bad With Money, as it turns out there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. You just kind of have to do your best. And I'll link the Vox article below because it's really nuanced and informative, so I would love to know my listeners' thoughts on it. If you want to email me, gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com and let me know what you think. There are also other pitfalls of fast fashion, waste, and garment worker abuse. So we can brush up first on the waste aspect. Obviously, fast fashion uses materials like polyester and nylon, which do not decay. They sit in landfills. And then for the next problem, garment workers who make these items of clothing are largely exploited and underpaid women and children of color. Yep, children. And the whole industry has a huge lack of transparency around who's working in these factories and for what salary. It is extremely shady. And three, we don't even get to this in my interviews for this episode, but here's a personal pet peeve. They steal designs. They straight up rip off artists. Urban Outfitters is one of the worst offenders. In April of 2020, the company was again, after multiple accusations, recently they were accused of ripping off a woman of color by taking a painting by indigenous artist Mitjili Naparula and selling it as an outdoor rug. A month before that, in March, the company was exposed for stealing from Canadian artist Lee Mazaros. The CBC reported, she said, My fear all along since I got their initial email is that once you're on their radar, you can either play along or get ripped off and have nothing to do with the process, the 36-year-old said in an interview. So basically, they emailed her to ask if they could use her design. She said, sure, told them the price. They said, "Uh, I'm sorry, it would actually cost us too much to make this for our clientele. And then she saw items resembling her creations on Urban Outfitters' website. So you can just Google it. There's literally hundreds of examples dating back as far as 2014. Like, this is not an ethical company. And all of them do this. All of them steal. And look, if these brands want to rip off big-time designs from places like Gucci or Versace, whatever, by all means. But it's stealing from marginalized indie creators and artists that I just cannot abide. So we don't get into that aspect much here. That's just like my personal pet peeve. But we do cover extensively the environmental and garment worker abuse aspects with our incredible first guest, Elizabeth Klein, author of Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, one of the very first exposés on the fast fashion industry, and of The Conscious Closet, a revolutionary guide to looking good while doing good. Klein is a journalistic icon and the expert to talk on the subject, so I am thrilled to have someone with her extensive knowledge base on the show. She's also an activist with Pay Up Fashion and Remake, both of which we discuss in this interview. Then we're going to talk to actress and one of my close friends, Jessica Nicole, who notoriously makes all of her own clothing, including her shoes and undergarments. That's right, she makes all of her clothes. Jessica has appeared on shows like Fringe and The Good Doctor. Jessica is an extreme example of someone completely on the opposite side of a fast fashion consumer. But first, Elizabeth Klein. My name is Elizabeth Klein. I am a journalist and the author of two books on the fashion industry. What is fast fashion? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So I think fast fashion 
at its you know simplest is refers to a model of retailing clothing that is very focused on speed to market, low price, and trendiness. So the first generation of fast fashion companies were you know companies like Forever Twenty One, H and M, Zara. They were the companies that quote unquote democratized fashion and made it possible to buy the latest trends for. An affordable price, and then of course, more recently, we've seen a new generation of ultra fast fashion companies that don't have brick and mortar stores that are online only. Companies like Boohoo and Fashion Nova, and Shein. Is it also what fabric it's made with, or you know how who is making it? I think there's a shorthand aspect to it where people think of it as. Clothing that's made without respect for the environment and human rights, and so if you really look at the sustainability aspects of the business model, it is true that fast fashion companies are, for the most part, using like lower quality materials, just faster production. So you know you're not you're not buying something that's made with a lot of like skill and attention to detail. But that's where it gets kind of murky because I would argue that. Most of the fashion industry is operating on a fast fashion model. Like most big brands are churning out as much product as they can throughout the year. Across the board, except for the luxury brands, clothing is is really cheaper than it ever has been in history. It's completely unprecedented in human human civilization for people to be able to hoard and haul, you know, vast quantities of clothing. And there are a lot of different reasons why clothing has become so cheap, but part of it is low quality of materials. And then the second component of it that a lot of my work focuses on is is labor rights. You know, you've got outsourcing to mostly low and middle income right. countries, and specifically to a lot of migrant women of color who are working in fashion supply chains who do not benefit from this system. They are paid very Poor wages, and mm-hmm. we really haven't seen wages to garment workers like go up over time. But on the other end of the spectrum, you just see these brands making like so much freaking money, like a mind blowing amount of money mm-hmm. off this system. What about luxury brands like I don't know, like Gucci or Versace or something, where they take pride in like we've only made forty of these scarves? You know, <laughs> are people still into that, or is that kind of like? Nobody can afford that anymore. <laughs> the luxury industry is it's is interesting. Um, Dana Thomas, uh, another journalist, she wrote this really fabulous book on the transition that the luxury industry has gone under over the last fifteen to twenty years. The luxury industry is not transparent, so one of the issues with it is it's very difficult to get information about how those companies operate. They're really secretive, but we know that a big portion of what luxury companies are churning out like Gucci is mass it's mass produced right. it's uh, it's also a fast fashion product in the sense that it's high volumes of stuff the main difference now between luxury a lot of luxury i won't say all but luxury and fast fashion is that it's got a huge markup on it so you know there's something to be said for the fast fashion companies who are at least trying to make clothing more accessible Whereas luxury brands really try to capitalize off of 
the growing inequality in our society. And they really want people to aspire to own things that they can't afford, which I, I think is as problematic, if not more so than what some of the fast fashion companies are doing. Yeah, because it's about the, you know, the label or it's about yeah. like being a person who owns this type of thing and what that says about you. Right. How did you start wanting to research fast fashion or how, how did that even come into your head as something to to look into? Yeah, so I got into writing about fast fashion because like you know, many young people who have come before me and have come after me, like I fell into shopping cheaply. I was buying a lot of clothes and just turned around one day and, and realized that I owned over 350 items of clothes, which now doesn't even, that's not even a lot. Like at the time it was a shocking amount of clothing because I started researching overdressed a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And at that time there were no investigations into fast fashion being done. Like if you were looking up information about where your clothes came from, who made them, what are the social and environmental impacts of our purchasing practices? There just was no information out there. So I really got started out of just personal curiosity and like personal responsibility. Like I wanted to be mindful about clothing, but I didn't really know how to start. And the clothing industry, I mean, it's just so fascinating. Like there's so many different layers to it that, that all these years later, I continue to write about it. Everybody is aware of fast fashion. I just saw like A.D. Bryant on Saturday Night Live, like came out as Mother Earth and did this segment on climate change mm -hmm. on SNL. And she was like, you know, obviously we're going to have to stop shopping at Forever 21 if we want to do anything <laughs> about climate change. And it was really mind blowing to just to see that evolution where yeah. people went from not being aware at all to where it's actually a mainstream conversation and there's a lot of consciousness around it. I think Instagram and Shein and Fashion Nova, the prevalence of that kind of got people thinking. That's my guess. Yeah. What is sustainable fashion? Sustainable fashion is a very contested space. Mm -hmm. I would say there are two camps. The industry, really, the fashion industry, mainstream fashion industry, really wants consumers to believe that the fashion industry can be sustainable under its existing business model. All it needs to do mm. is switch out polyester to recycled polyester, cotton to organic cotton, and power factories on renewable energy, and it'll be sustainable. I am not in that camp of people. I believe that for the fashion industry to be sustainable in any meaningful sense of the word, it would have to look really different than the industry that we have today. My work is very focused on human and labor rights for the people in the supply chain. So before anything changes in the fashion industry, I think the most important thing is for everyone who works in the industry to be justly compensated, to have a fair, dignified, equitable experience at work. And that right there is just such a um, big project. My understanding of sustainable fashion is the kind of old school common sense approach to sustainability, which is everything that we make in this world requires a lot of natural resources. It requires a lot of time. And if you want to be sustainable, it, it really starts with remembering that it takes a lot to make a product and just respecting the resources that go into the products that you own. 
And that can mean anything from deciding that if you are a fast fashion consumer that you're going to shop less, try to get more use out of what you own. I know a lot of people have gotten more into resale and trying to buy everything secondhand. And then there's just been this like resurgence in people making their own clothes. Yeah. So what are some of the like worst company behaviors? Let's let people understand like what exactly is happening to the climate. Let's start with Shein because that's a company that was already doing well before the pandemic. And then when everyone was just sort of trapped at home with nothing to do, that company just really took off. And there was no information about them for a long time. Like some people were like, they were linked to some child labor allegations. Yeah. But there was just such a lack of transparency around how they operated. And then recently, I think one of the most thorough investigations came out on Xi'an. And I guess not surprisingly, their garment workers in Southern China are working more than 75 hours a week with one day off a month. (gasps) That's totally illegal. Like that's a violation of Chinese labor law. That's a violation of international labor laws. And I want people to know that that is not that is not typical of all fast fashion brands. Right. It's not. Poverty pay in fashion might be typical, but not forcing people to work that many hours a week. Wow. So that's a good example of, of the bad. In terms of the environment, I think that the, the issue really is about scale because the fashion industry is like producing over 100 billion garments per year and then it grows like you know, two to 3% per year. So that's, that's another additional wow. several billion garments on top of everything else that's already being produced. So you have to think about all that water, all those chemicals, all those fossil fuels. So it's just a giant, giant industry. The impact really adds up. What about like consumer behaviors? We got to all do our part for climate change, but also Mm -hmm. it's mostly top companies are the problem. So what you do doesn't really matter, but like it does matter, you know, like what about like consumer behaviors? Maybe we start with mentioning how much of it is coming from the companies and how much of it is kind of this confluence of factors that are bigger than us. Like, because fast fashion, it's not just driven by out of control consumer behavior. Right. We're talking about the confluence of globalization, technology, social media, Mm -hmm. the emergence of Asia and Africa as like middle income countries where people are consuming like us. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the reasons why the fashion industry just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But in terms of like what consumers can do to make change, we have to keep using our voices to call out these companies and, and demand that they change. Fashion brands, they are reputationally sensitive. Mm. They do care what we think. Can you talk about SB62? So SB62, the Garment Worker Protection Act, is a bill that just passed in California in September. It goes into law in January, and it's a historic landmark piece, piece of legislation. So what it does is change two things about the law. A lot of people don't realize this, but California is the biggest garment producing hub in the United States, and there are still 46,000 garment workers in the state. So it's still, you know, they still manufacture like quite a lot of clothing there. And they manufacture a lot of fast fashion. 
like Fashion Nova sources a lot from California. Mm -hmm. So over the years, the garment workers kind of figured out like why exploitation kept happening in the industry. Like they, people were getting paid as little as a third of the legal minimum wage. So you had like American garment workers earning sometimes as little as like $3 an hour or less. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so the law, first of all, eliminates the piece rate system of pay. So that's the system where instead of paying people by the hour, you pay them like a couple of cents per seam they sew. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's something that factory owners have used throughout the history of the fashion industry to underpay garment workers. And if you actually look at that investigation into Sheehan, that's part of part of what's going on there too, is people are earning piece rate. Wow. So piece rate is gone. Oof. Factories can use it after garment workers are earning the minimum wage. But the reason why SB 62 has excited the world in terms of what's possible for changing the industry is that it holds fashion brands responsible when wage theft happens in their factories. And this is a huge shift because if you ever pay attention, like when something bad happens in a garment factory, what usually happens is brands get their legal departments and they release all these statements that say, those aren't our workers. Mm -hmm. This is not our problem. We are not legally responsible. And until (laughs) SB 62 passed, that was true. So what we've done is set a legal precedent that brands are responsible for their garment workers, which is why we're really excited to see how this could change the law, not only in the United States, but internationally as well. Wow. I have never heard of piece rate and that is awful. Yeah. It makes total sense that they would do that because capitalism. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) What is a change that someone could make right now in terms of their wardrobe or their buying that could one, make their life better and two, be better for the world? Well, we've already mentioned shopping secondhand. Mm -hmm. From a sustainability standpoint, I think it's just like a really accessible place to start. The second really easy thing people can do is I'm part of a nonprofit called Remake. Mm. There are other nonprofits in the sustainable fashion space. Clean Clothes Campaign and Fashion Revolution are two, two other organizations that we work with a lot. Follow those accounts on Instagram because they are constantly doing actions, you know, like speaking out against unethical brand behavior. And really, we are together moving this fashion industry towards justice. Like SB62. People told us that was impossible to win that bill. And it was partially because of the power of the ethical fashion community and a lot of activism on social media that we won. I think the third thing I would say is just remember that education is part of the process. So when you are getting informed, like try not to get overwhelmed. Just realize that like, that's just your first step. You're like committing to be aware Mm -hmm. and to be a responsible citizen you talked about pay up for a little bit, but what, what is pay up fashion? So pay up is a campaign that launched in the depths of the pandemic <laughs> in response to fashion brands trying to cancel their clothing orders without paying garment workers. This was clothing that was already manufactured. It was already done. It was for work already done. And at the start of the pandemic, brands owed an estimated $40 billion to their factories and garment workers for clothes that were already in production or completed. And the pay-up campaign was very simple. We demanded that brands pay, pay for their contracts, pay for this work. 
pay their garment workers for work that had already been done. And the campaign, it ended up going viral. It had a huge social media following and we ended up getting an estimated $22 billion secured back to factories and workers from 25 big companies. So it's like everybody from H&M and Zara to Levi's, Gap, Primark, CNA Mm -hmm. agreed to pay up. So it was a very successful campaign and it continues. It's, It's a movement that has inspired people to keep working to change the fashion industry. So if you go to the payupfashion.com website, you can sign the petition, sign up for updates, and just stay involved. It's so interesting that these campaigns were able to go viral online and you were able to get a lot of backing for SB62. And then at the same time, I feel like Shein and Fashion Nova only rose because of social media, because of all these postings. Like It's like two things are battling (laughs) each other on the same platforms. It's so kind of wild to me. Yeah. If you see like an influencer promoting one of these companies, like Mm -hmm. what can you do? Like, what do you, uh, do you, is it like worth it to sort of like comment or to be like, I don't know, like, what can you say? You know, I'm aware that there's a debate over what the responsible position of an influencer should be. Mm -hmm. I try to remember as a labor rights advocate that influencers are also workers They are often unprotected. They don't have workplace Mm -hmm. rights themselves. A lot of them are making a lot of money. A lot of them are not making any money. Or they're working. We've talked about that here. (laughs) Yeah. Or they're working really hard to put food on the table. So I try to come at it from being mindful of the fact that in a capitalist society, we all have to work. Yeah. I think that one of the things that influencers can be doing is if you have any leverage with a brand, Instead of just cutting the brand off, you could try going back to them and saying, hey, my community wants to know what your position is on climate change, on deforestation, on systemic racism, Mm -hmm. you know, like what are you doing to invest in marginalized communities? Mm -hmm. Go back to them with a set of demands. I actually think that that could be a lot more powerful than, than what the current expectation is, which is like, you just can never work with unethical Mm -hmm. fashion brands because most so many fashion brands are have such a long way to go. Can you explain greenwashing a little bit? Greenwashing, uh, I guess, is the original form. It, it's it's overselling, <laughs> overselling environmental credentials or actually misleading consumers. So I think some common examples are when brands say, we're going to use 100% sustainable cotton by 2025, or we're going to be 100% climate neutral by 2050 or whatever. But when you start to dig into it, first of all, there's no such thing as 100% sustainability when you're a consumer goods company. Like that's extremely misleading because what it says to the consumer is you're thinking this company has a positive environmental impact. And what they're saying is we've done some things to make our impact slightly less. Mm-hmm. So greenwashing is a it's a really big problem and I've actually been working with a group of people who are um have asked the Federal Trade Commission in the United States to revise their advertising guidelines cuz some of this stuff should be illegal. Climate change is too urgent of an issue for companies to be out there tricking consumers into thinking that they're saving the planet by buying a pair of shoes. Totally. So like where can people find your books, find out more about you? Well, my two books are Overdressed and The Conscious Closet. 
I'm pretty active on Instagram. So my handle is Elizabeth L. Klein. I have a website, elizabethkleinbooks.com. You can always email me. Again, follow Remake. That's the nonprofit I'm part of. And that's just a really great place to start if you're interested in doing more activism or advocacy and you just have a few extra minutes per week, you can get involved in one of our campaigns. Next, we're going to talk to my friend, Jessica Nicole. My name is Jessica Nicole. I am an actor for film and television, but I am also what I like to call an avid maker. I sew all my own clothes. I like to make furniture. I do a little bit of woodworking, some upholstery. I do illustration. I do pottery. I like to keep busy between jobs because sometimes you don't know how long (laughs) it's going to be before that next gig. Yeah. (laughs) So you are like notorious for making all of your own clothes. So how did that start? It started... Actually, when a show that I had been on for about five years, the show was canceled. My partner, Claire, and I had been living in Vancouver for four years. So we moved to Los Angeles, got a house. It had a lot of space. And I thought, oh, this is so exciting. I can finally sew because I learned how to sew in college, but, you know, didn't really have a lot of time to do it. And so I basically didn't work for like a long period of time, but again, I like to stay busy. So I tried to use that time in a beneficial way. And I just learned about how to fit clothes to my body. I already knew how to sew, but I didn't really know how to like adjust patterns and get a very specific fit for my body type. So I learned a lot about fabrics in that couple of years. I sewed every single day. I kind of gave myself like a crash course in sewing And so now, several years later, I can go to a store and see ready-to-wear clothing and pretty much make just about anything that I see for myself. I make jeans, I make blazers, I make fun dresses to wear at like red carpet events. And it has become this really empowering thing that I get to do for myself, particularly because, you know, the acting industry as you, I'm sure, are familiar, um, you don't have a lot of say. It's not really a collaborative art form. So Mm -hmm. you kind of show up and you do your job and that's it. So when I get to make things, things like my own clothes or, you know, whatever kind of artwork I'm working on, I get to be the boss. I get to be the director. I get to say this is good enough or keep working on it or whatever. Did you notice then like the quality changing? A thousand percent. So I was somebody who shopped fast fashion places. You know, I would go to H&M and see what they had. I've been to Zara before. And I was a big mod cloth fan. This was back in the like, you know, 2000s. The heyday of mod cloth. The heyday of mod cloth. Whoa, we were all wearing them. <laughs> we were all wearing those polka dots and those bright sunny yellow colors. I'm still wearing bright sunny yellow colors. <laughs> but yeah, I did. You know, I would, I would buy things that I liked. And also there's a whole culture around buying things to celebrate something and buying things when you're sad about something. Like it's a very emotionally driven, or at least for me, it was a very emotional driven experience. And I started to notice hardly anything that I bought fit that well. Every single thing needed some kind of adjustment. So when I started making my own clothes, everything fit really well. Nothing needed an adjustment. Mm. And the clothes were a better quality because fast fashion tends to use very cheap materials because they're trying to make a lot of money. So they'll use things like polyester. Polyester is the bane of my existence. It's (laughs) plastic and it doesn't breathe well. So if you go to like vintage stores 
with old clothes and you might see like a really cool suit or a dress or something, if it's made in like the 70s or even the 80s, it's generally going to be polyester. And that is why they smell (laughs) because it's not a breathable material. So it holds all that funk deep into Mm -hmm. the fibers of the garment and it's really hard to get rid of. So once I started working with, you know, organic cottons and silks and linens, my clothes don't smell bad all the time anymore. I don't put them in the dryer. I line dry all of my clothing because I want them to last a long time. And that's the sort of thing that you don't get with fast fashion because it doesn't last for a ton of washes. They tend to fall apart because not only are the materials not, you know, very high quality, but they're not made super well. They're not made to last. They don't want it to last. They want you to keep coming back into the Mm -hmm. store to buy more. Yeah. Where do you get your fabrics from and how much does that cost? Okay. So... You know, there's this misconception about sewing your own clothes, that it's cheaper, and that is not necessarily true. High quality is high quality, you know, regardless of of who is doing it. The difference is that there is no labor put in by people somewhere else that I don't know if they're being taken care of or not. Like Mm -hmm. I get to take that part out of the equation. So it's only my labor. But the fabrics, you know, you you can buy cheaper polyester stuff. And that's fine. I really don't mean to judge anybody who likes polyester. But when you're talking about like the environmental impact of it, it just doesn't biodegrade. So Mm -hmm. it's going to sit in a landfill and it's not going to like decompose the way that other things are. That's why we want to stay away from plastics. So, you know, you can find all kinds of cool fabric stores around that use overstock from designers. So you can go to a shop and you can see a fabric and go, oh my God, I saw that in Bloomingdale's (laughs) and they'll be selling it for like $10 a yard or something like that because the designers, the fashion houses, they get a lot of fabric, they make what they need and the rest they throw away. So oh. now there's a business for people to come in and try and buy that fabric for cheaper and then, you know, have it available to other people who might want to buy it, like the home sewist, like myself. Right. Linen and silks, you know, those tend to be a little bit higher priced. But I always encourage people who are really interested to getting into sewing. Obviously, you don't want to spend a ton of money on fabric when you're just getting started. You can use so many things for fabric. You can use curtains. You can use duvet covers. You can use sheets. Go to Goodwill. You know, buy clothes. Let me say one caveat, though. <laughs> there is this trend where uh, straight-sized people and thin people will go to secondhand stores and they will buy plus-sized clothing because there's more fabric and they can get more bang for their buck and they can kind of turn that fabric into anything they want. Upcycle. Yes. That is not cool. It's not okay. (laughs) I've heard that. There are, you know, there are not a lot of uh, plus-sized clothing in secondhand stores. So just because, you know, you think nobody would want to buy it, you can't really be thinking from your own brain. You're trying to think about the community as a whole. So from learning how to sew to being able to make your first thing, like how much time and how, how, you know, how much trial and error does it take? My impression of you is that like you have infinite patience and time to be able to do this. Like that's my impression of you. Every time you post about it, I'm like, what the? (laughs) I love so much that you said that. I tell people all the time, they say, you're so talented. You do this, you do that. I'm not that talented. Okay. (laughs) I'm not trying to like denigrate myself or anything, but I don't think that that is my talent. I think that patience is my talent. I have cultivated so much patience for myself. So if I try something and it doesn't work out, 
I don't, okay, I have thrown things across the room before, but that's not my go-to thing, okay? I usually am calm with myself and say, all right, let's try something different. I try not to look at anything as a failure, and I started calling it a learning success because if I have failed at something, but now I have new knowledge in my brain about what to do next time, that is not a fail. That is a part of the learning process. Oh my God. I know, I know. It's like very kindergarten teacher, but it really is true to have that kind of a switch in your brain about uh, giving yourself the space to experiment and try things. And I think that we lose that as adults. I think it's something that is cultivated in children when they're in school. And then as we get older and we have jobs and families and kids to take care of and bills to pay, we just don't have a lot of patience We don't do self-care in the way of having hobbies, having things that have no kind of like monetary value. It just has an emotional value for Mm -hmm. us. It just feels good. I would love for adults to be able to have, you know, more of that practice in their lives. So in terms of the amount of time that it takes, it takes a while. It is something that you have to invest in. And it also does take time. And I would like all your listeners to know that I do not have children and I have a non-traditional <laughs> job. So I have a lot of time to like, you know, play with stitches and play with fabric. That said, it is still absolutely in people's wheelhouse. Sewing is following instructions. And that's why it requires patience because sometimes you read something and you don't get it and you go to the next step or you decide to do it a different way. That's not going to help you out that much. You kind of need to understand the rules of it and then you can start to play around with it and find your own style and find your own techniques with it. Have you ever like thought like, okay, I'll maybe I'll sell some stuff or maybe I'll like be a designer or something like that? No. (laughs) (laughs) People don't quite understand how much time and effort it takes to make a garment. You know, I think that's one of the deficits that's happened now that so many factories have left the United States and they're being sourced out in other places. It's like you don't see it, so you don't even think about it. People go mm-hmm. to H&M and every single week they have like 40 new items in the store. They don't think about how it got there. It's like magic. All of a sudden it's there. But there were hands that made right. that, that spent hours making this garment for you. And I hate that we don't have to think about it. I hate that it's so easy to go to Walmart or to to Amazon and just click and buy something without thinking about the human element that is included Mm -hmm. in it. Clothing and shoes and hats and your accessories, those are made by human hands. And most of those human hands are, are women of color. Most of them have families and children to feed that aren't able to do so. It's a real, it's a whole thing. Yeah. And I also want to say that I do think that there is a place for cheap fashion. I totally understand that people don't have the time to make their own clothes. I invite people who are interested in that to learn more about it, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody has the time, the resources, the money, or even the mental energy to do such a thing. What burdens me most about fast fashion is that it's a cycle where you have to keep buying more. So what I want people to learn how to do is to take care of the clothes that they do get. So if they go to Zara and they buy a blazer, that's fantastic. Let's get it to fit you so that the sleeves aren't too long and you roll them up. And after a couple of wears, you're like, oh, I'm sick of doing this. You can take a Zara blazer to like a dry cleaners or an alteration shop. 
and it doesn't cost a ton of money. So you can take a blazer in and for maybe 15 or 20 bucks, they'll like fix the cuff or fix the hem so that it, that it fits you. And then you're going to want to get that dry cleaned when it gets dirty, you know, like you're, you're still going to have to invest a little bit of extra money, but that, if that keeps you from going to Zara three times a month to find out what's new, because you're able to take care of the better quality stuff, then I am all for that. I think I just want us to be able to preserve the clothes that we do have instead of constantly adding to the closet and then getting rid of stuff, you know, every single season because you only wore this thing one time or something. And, you know, that's something that we all have to learn how to do. I had to do it too, because I can make things so quickly now that my closet can get filled up, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. And so I am also trying to be very conscious about what is it that I need versus what is it that I want? What is the difference? Doesn't mean you can't ever buy something that you want to have versus need, but if you're putting thought into it and trying to think about the community as a whole versus what do I just want in this moment right now and why do I want it? I think that that would be really helpful for a lot of people. It's this hard thing like you always hear about like uh, costing more money to be poor in some ways because like yes. a rich person can buy a super nice blazer and have that blazer. Yep. And then a poor person is like, well, I can't afford a $50 blazer right now, but I can afford a $5 blazer each month. Yep. (laughs) And it's like so awful. And you hear that about so many different things, not just fashion, but like for people, for low income people and like people who can't afford that much money, like it's so many things are like that where I can't get $100 really nice work boots, but I can get $20 boots every month. Like it's like, ugh, it's so frustrating. (laughs) With fashion stuff, I also... Uh, I personally, like, I'll make a list. So if I notice that I don't have, like, a black t-shirt, mm-hmm. like, I'll notice when I'm getting dressed, oh, I, you know what I could really use for this outfit? Then I'll mark it down, write it down, and then I'll try to see, like, four or five outfits that could go with it. Yes. So that at least it's, every single thing has a purpose. That is so, so smart. I love that so much. It's hard, and I gotta get rid of a lot. No, I get it. We We call that curating your closet in the sewing world where you're thinking about how much longevity one article will have. And that that's a big mainstay of like, before I started making all my clothes, I would have like one shirt that went with one skirt and that was it. Yeah, And it would just languish in my closet for like years because it was still really cute and I liked it, but it didn't really go with that many things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once I started making my own clothes, it's interesting Because I'm like, my time and my energy is valuable. I don't think like that when I'm shopping, you know, at Zara or something. But when I'm making it, I'm like, I'm not making something that I'm only going to wear one time. Unless it's, you know, a nice dress for a red carpet event. But otherwise, I'm thinking about the color. I am thinking about the fabric. I'm thinking, does it go with this? And that's when I started coming up with the color palette. Because that meant that I would get much more wear with each individual piece. Because they all worked within the same kind of world of color. Color palettes aren't for everybody. Some people, their color palette is a rainbow, and I very much appreciate (laughs) that myself. But it was helpful for me to kind of hone in and say, um, let's focus in on what you're going to get the most wear out of. And yeah, it is is really hard, Mm -hmm. especially when you're an adult and you have things like bills 
things that suck so much joy out of your life. And so you're trying to find joy in anything you can. And sometimes that is going to the store and buying a really cute skirt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. But I do think that, again, we can have a slight shift in the way that we think about it. So we're thinking not just of ourselves as individuals, but the impact of it as a whole. And you might think about the impact and still buy the skirt. And that is okay. Mm -hmm. At least you're thinking about it. Thank you so much for coming on. I could not be more excited about this episode. (laughs) I'm so thrilled. Where can people find you and find out more about you and see all your creations? Yeah. Okay. You can find me on Instagram at Jessica is Try Curious. And that is a name that I have, obviously, because I am so curious about, you know, uh, different ways of making and, and what you can create with your own hands. And I encourage other people to be curious about the world around them in the same way. You can also find me on TikTok. At Jessica is try curious. So yeah, you can find me there. I also have a blog where I do a lot of sewing pattern reviews at jessicanicole.com. I am so, so, so happy we finally did a Bad With Money episode about fast fashion. A few of you guys actually messaged me last month to ask me to do one, so you have excellent timing. I think we can all, me included, stand to be more conscious about what we put in our closets and also about the grander ways these companies treat workers, the environment, and artists. An individual can only do so much, but collective action through orgs like Remake and Pay Up Fashion can do a whole lot more. In your area, please look up and be aware of any legislation that affects garment workers. Stand with indie artists who call out these brands, and think a little bit about what you're putting in your closet. And if you thrift, make sure it's with conscientious thought and that it's from some place that isn't terrible. Ugh. I don't know. Everyone, just do your best. Done. 